Hello and welcome to a GCP short produced in collaboration with Beecher Carlson and all about financing retained risk. This episode follows nicely on from a GCP short we released in July 2020 on defining risk appetite in a hard market when we were joined by Jason Flaxbeard and captive owners Courtney Claflin and Michael LaPerch. If you haven't heard that episode, then you can scroll back through our back catalogue in your podcast app to give it a listen. And there is also a link to it in this episode's notes. For the next 18 minutes, however, I am going to be joined by Mark Bentley, Director of Risk Finance at Intercontinental Hotels Group and Jay Sampson, an Executive Managing Director within Risk Optimization at Beecher Carlson. Mark, Jay and I discuss the importance of differentiating between an insurer's appetite for their own risk versus others, what tools are available to quantify risk and using a captive to consolidate legacy risk across the group. So, Jay, we heard in the previous uh, GCP short with Beecher Carlson all about defining risk appetite in a hardening market. Uh, what are some of the key considerations for you in that exercise? And how does frequency, severity and volatility play a role in that? I think there's a couple of things that we think about when we're thinking about risk appetite. First and foremost, there's the financial ability of the organization to retain risk. And when I, when I say the financial ability, I'm really looking around the available liquidity that organization, whether that be cash on the balance sheet or access to capital, prearranged credit lines, things of that nature, and also their earnings strength, right? If they are in a position where they are repeatedly performing well year over year and have a steady stream of profits, both of those, you know, liquidity and profitability measures would be something that would probably point us towards a pretty healthy risk appetite. That's that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, and this is certainly something I think that that Mark can speak to is there might be some external considerations, whether there be banking restrictions on, on how much risk one can retain, covenants and debt agreements, or uh, in situations where maybe you're buying insurance and financing risk on behalf of third parties, uh, you know, you may not want to, you may not have their permission to take a lot of additional risk. So I think all of the above, and, and certainly Mark, I know for you guys at IHG, that sort of that last consideration is rather key, is it not? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Um, we have to we have to consider what is our risk um, and what is risk that we are financing on behalf of others. And I think there is a, certainly a consideration between or a different consideration between the two. Um, and, and we have to and we have to balance that with with what we're prepared to do uh, and and as you say can do as well. And to the second part of your question, Richard, the you know how does how much does frequency, severity, and volatility play a role in into that appetite discussion? I mean, it's it's critical. Uh, you know, as I believe Jason Flaxbeard said on one of your previous podcasts, we believe that all frequency risks should be taken on by large insurers, right? That there's no reason for them to trade dollars with the insurance company, but there is a certain amount of severity that they could also probably take on as well. That amount of severity, which is equal to their risk appetite. And then any severity above that is what we want to use the insurance market for. So, you know, certain lines of coverage are going to be way more exposed to severity than others, and, and others are more frequency driven. So as we're thinking through risk appetite, we're absolutely thinking through what are those risks that present frequency events for us versus potential severity risk. And then you could have a frequency driven risk that could have some volatility to it. And we need to help our clients quantify how much volatility 
for those sort of mundane risks that they can assume. So frequency and severity, as well as the volatility of those various risks, is a critical component to the overall, you know, marrying one's risk appetite with the way they go about financing risk. So all of the above are important. And Mark, you, obviously Jay touched there on that frequency, severity, volatility angle. Is, is that similar to how, how you guys at IHG view using the captive? Does the frequency stuff kind of automatically go through the captive and your own kind of retentions? Um, yeah, in, in general, absolutely. Um, obviously, we're always considering um, what the market is prepared to do as well. Um, so, so it is absolutely a balance between the two, um, but, but principally, um, the high frequency, low low severity is what we're looking to finance ourselves, um, and then obviously leverage the market um, accordingly to to transfer that volatility. Yeah, I want to I want to come on to a bit of how uh, how you do look for market support in, in a moment, Mark. But Jay, in regards to uh, working out what a insured's appetite is for insuring through the captive, what what tools are there generally available, Jay, to to quantify that appetite and and how does a captive uh, play a role once it has been quantified? There are obviously a lot of tools that have been developed over the over, some that existed for twenty to thirty years and some that are relatively new over the last three to four. Um, you know, obviously, actuarial science helping clients really quantify their workers' comp general liability and auto exposures has been around a long time. That's a very sophisticated science. And because of the law of large numbers, actuaries can pretty accurately determine various volatility distribution curves for those three lines of coverage. But obviously, you know, catastrophic property losses have come a long way for the longest time we have been able to model named windstorm and earthquake losses. But obviously now with um, some of the, the larger providers of cap modeling licensing tools like RMS and AIR, to name a couple, um, you know, there's things like wildfire and inland flood and hail losses. Uh, there's probably 10 different catastrophic or maybe even a dozen catastrophic perils that cap modeling tools are available to brokers and insurers and, and buyers of insurance to help model those risks and what they look like. But in addition to those that are somewhat more you know, traditional models, a lot of the brokers and insurance companies are developing their own proprietary models. For instance, one that Beecher Carlson is doing right now is an attritional property loss model to help our clients better understand based on the makeup of their property portfolio, how likely they are to have an attritional loss. Several other brokers, including Beecher, have come up with cyber models, both for first party, you know, business interruption type losses emanating from a cyber event to third party privacy breach model and, and you know, what the potential costs would be from a, from a breach event for, for a client. Um, so cyber is clearly one that's come a long way in the recent past. There are securities class action litigation models. Um, which is, if you think about it, that's that's helping our clients model some of their DNO risk, which uh, is quite unique. And those models tend to do a couple of things. They they will give you the probability based on the corporate governance within your own organization that you are going to have a securities class action event. If you do have that securities class action event, what is the likelihood that you would be dismissed from that uh, litigation? And finally, if you're not dismissed. What are the potential range of outcomes that one might expect? So that's a, that's a model that's helping clients really understand what their securities class action exposure is. 
Obviously, employment practices liability uh, has come a long way, unfortunately, here in the United States because there's so many incidents that actuaries can start to build curves around that. So I think traditionally, some of the tools that you know have been there are, are still very valid. You know, like I mentioned, the actuarial science and the cap modeling. But we've come a long way in developing as an industry, a long way is de developing other models as well. Uh, and I'm sure there are other proprietary models that other insurers and brokers have that I'm unaware of. Um, and so all of those tools are available to the captive to really help it better understand the, the risk, help quantify that risk, the volatility around that risk to help drive better underwriting practices within the captives, much like what in, you know, sophisticated insurance companies have had for a long time. Captives have the ability to be a little bit more sophisticated now than they've historically been, which was generally, hey, what have our historical losses been? And, and let's kind of come up with a premium based on historical losses. We can use models now for a lot of the perils I just mentioned to really drive down to what an appropriate captive premium might need to be. Yeah, no, really, really good to have that breakdown, Jay, of, of the kind of technology and tools that are are available. Mark, you mentioned before, obviously, a little bit about the difference between defining your own risk and assuming the risk uh, for others. And you talked about obviously looking for uh, insurance market support at at the right at the right spot. Once you've found that sweet spot where you want to transfer the risk out further into the market, what kind of market support do you want to pass on the risk you don't have an appetite for? Yeah, I think um, there, there's not a straightforward um, answer to that. You know, I, I think that these things do move around a lot. I think what we have done, certainly with our captive, is to incorporate a number of non-correlating risks as well. Um, so again, we're looking to get the right balance right across the portfolio that we're, that we're retaining within the cap. And I think engaging with, with the market that is prepared to do that. So traditional lines of insurance, as well as some non-traditional lines of insurance that we write in the captive, we need that market support that is going to really understand um, the various risks um, and, and ultimately be flexible around responding to um, the levels of risk that we're prepared to take. And our appetite is going to change year in, year out. Um, and that flexibility needs to be there as well. You know, Mark, you and I are working actually right now on a risk that I, I won't mention exactly what the risk is, but we're looking to put a risk into the captive right now where you had initially wanted to get some reinsurance support and the reinsurance market came back to us and said, uh, yeah, not right now, maybe in the future, but not now. How did that process inform your decision whether or not to, to continue to pursue putting that particular risk in the captive or not? Yeah, thanks, Jack. I think you, you kind of you hit you hit the nail right on the head there, which is ultimately risk that we take into the captive um, has to be marketable. Um, we, we don't want to put risk into the captive that is simply retaining a, a non-insurable risk or is not going to get market support. So yeah, the, the situation we're in at the moment is obviously very challenging, um, but certainly hopeful that as we write some of these risks, the market support will be there in future. Um, and I think ultimately we will prove we will prove the structure in the right manner as well. Um, so it is certainly a challenge. The, the market needs to needs to reflect that. Um, the captive will only write um, those types of risks um, certainly within IHG. But ultimately, it is to still transfer that volatility with, with market support to make it viable. Do you think there's a chance if we go two or three years into this potential program? and you see the results after a couple, two or three years are not nearly as volatile or as volatile as predicted, 
do you foresee there could be a possibility that you, the captive would ultimately want to take that risk without reinsurance consideration? And if the answer is no, then would you look to unwind that captive transaction at that point if ultimately no reinsurance support is available? I think that what we would look to do, um, or what we're certainly looking to do, is to is to really find that sweet spot right across the insured perils that are in the captive. Um, so whilst it may not be, it may not have market support as a as a mono placement. Um, if it has, or what we're looking to really get is market support across a number of separate lines. But I think to to your question, I think ultimately, if it's not possible to do that, um, then I think that that would. Uh, revise our thinking in regards to whether this is truly an insured, insurable peril or not. Really interesting conversation, guys. And um, one other area I want to touch on, we've, we've talked about particularly around kind of own risk versus you know, third party or kind of uh, risk of others. The, the other area which a lot of insureds have to grapple with, particularly large corporations like uh, yourselves at IHG, Mark, is obviously legacy risk from different areas of the business, whether that's acquired through you know, acquisitions or mergers or, or, or other ways, or maybe the types of the business which you know don't no, no longer exist, but there's still legacy risk from them. Can the captive be a, a vehicle to kind of consolidate uh, legacy risk from different areas of the business before passing it on to the reinsurance or alternative markets? And it does, does the captive, yeah, is, is that a particularly useful tool to do that? Certainly with an IHG, um, that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to use the captive for wherever we have um, legacy or retained risks right across the estate. So as you say, through acquisitions, um, we've acquired some legacy risk, but again, there is a there is an added complication within IHG of, of really whose money um, or whose cash that that risk actually relates to. Um, so certainly by utilising the captive, we're able to consolidate those risks and ultimately provide some real market proposals in regards to transferring those out. They may not be attractive as a standalone, but but to package them up with other risks. Um, all in one vehicle is certainly what we're aiming to do with the captive um, within IHG. Uh, Jay, is that something you see other other clients, other businesses taking that approach with the captive? Is that is that quite a common, useful approach to uh, legacy risk from from different or new parts of the business? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to say that you can't bundle legacy risk together without a captive. You can. But by and large, the vast majority of transactions that we see where people are looking to sell off liabilities, to Mark's point, being it, 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 it makes the transaction much more sleek, much more direct, uh, and, and, lo- and much less administration to have a captive bundling all those risks together from, say, you know, several different lines of coverage, several different insurers, et cetera, et cetera, so that you're not having to transact with the ultimate carrier that you're transferring this to with the other counterparties, you know, being in the dozens of numbers, if you can get that down to just one consolidated transaction, it certainly makes it a much more elegant and efficient transaction. So absolutely, yes is the answer to your question, but I don't want people to think that they can't transfer those liabilities as well without a captive. So you can do it either way. A captive just makes it much more easy to, to do so. Where I just want to end this conversation, we haven't, which is quite refreshing, we haven't actually uh, kind of dwelled too long on on the state of the insurance market. But it wouldn't be an episode of the Global Captive Podcast if we didn't mention the word hardening or harsh market. Um, (laughs) Mark, how how does the kind of the state of this insurance market change some of your dialogue or or thinking or approach to that sweet spot uh, that you're talking about in terms of transferring the risk? Does it does it put more pressure on the captive to play a larger role than you would otherwise have imagined? Or does the principle stay the same? 
to be honest, Richard, it's, it's probably a bit of both there. Um, not a straightforward response, I know. I think mm-hmm. ultimately the the premise um, and the way that IHG finance our risk remains relatively stable. Um, we are ultimately still approaching um, our risks in the same way to finance them in the same way. I think as we've touched on, the sweet spot obviously comes into play in regards to how much it costs to transfer. And the more that it costs, then obviously the less uh, attractive some of those uh, attachment points become um, and the more risk that ultimately is going to be retained within the captive. I think, again, from a from a pure IHG captive point of view, the more that we diversify our risk, then the more comfortable we get in taking more risk. And then hopefully that enables the business and is, and is certainly driving those those. Um, those profitability lines and positivity in regards to the business as well. So it's certainly a consideration, but I don't think that the hardening market necessarily changes the approach, but it certainly does bring into question where that sweet spot ultimately resides. Yeah, I would would just say, you know, look, we don't need to rehash the hard market. Everybody knows how difficult uh, it is. We're we're recording this right now in the middle of October. I just got finished with a a large October 1 renewal. uh, And the fact that the you know what the market was was doing in shrinking capacity on this potential on this particular excess liability placement that we were doing. You know, multiple layers, over fifteen different layers of coverage that were being placed for this client. The captive was really able to help us introduce competition into various layers. Uh, it might be, as an example, a layer sort of midway up to the tower, maybe the eighth or ninth layer, where we were struggling to get a carrier to give us the appropriate price per million. We were able to use the option of having the captive write that layer uh, to otherwise get some leverage to get that market to get their price in line. So I think that there are a lot of strategies that you can use uh, right now, a captive being one of them, to make sure that the premiums up a tower, whether it be property or casualty, that you're getting the appropriate credit as you move up the tower. Uh, And I think having a captive is certainly a tool that you have access, if you have access to that tool, is something that your broker should absolutely be deploying to help really optimize what your your premium spend is going to be by line of coverage. Well, thank you to Jay Sampson of Beecher Carlson and Mark Bentley of IHG for a very informative 18 minutes. To find out more about our two guests today, please do visit the globalcaptivepodcast.com website and also check out the Beecher Carlson page on the site as it has their full back catalogue of episodes with us. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. (laughs) 